rolling. What's happening, y'all? Andy and Zach here. We are back at the Fat Bottom Brewing Company here in the nations. With West. a new toy. Sure enough. With for episode 30. For episode 30, hopefully you, the dear listener, can hear the difference. We are now recording on a professional podcasting microphone. We'd like to thank everybody that contributed to the Patreon version of this podcast to make this happen. (laughs) Now, it's still just a microphone plugged into the USB, but it's something. And Do you have battery power, too? I think I should have... Plenty? I should have an hour's worth. Okay, cool. Yeah. Alright, we're all good, then. Yeah. So, hopefully, you can hear the difference, and... Hopefully this fancy microphone does not pick up the background noise too much. Somebody shredded on guitar today. Yeah, the the brewery has a prog metal playlist going on. Did you say today. prog? I did say prog. Like the city. Prog short for progressive. Oh. Prog rock, prog metal, short for progressive. I'm glad that I've already gotten to school Andy <laughs> a little bit here before apparently he's going to oh, take me to task. I'm not going to take you to task. I don't. I mean, this was a, 11 years ago or more. I don't remember a ton. Yeah. So we were talking about some of your experiences in academia, the good, the bad, the ugly. Oh, yeah. I won't talk about the ugly because she was annoying, but... My TA gave me a hard time for showing up to an exam, bef- like on time. Basically, is the short version of that story. How dare you? Basically, and then she had it out for me for the rest of the se- like semester. It was How weird. How dare you? Um, but what I was telling Zach was that as part of my undergraduate uh, degree study, whatever you want to call it, I took a cadaver anatomy class. Um, now the benefit of taking for doing what we do with exercise science and physical activity and whatever is kind of obvious. Cadaver anatomy is looking at the human body for real, for real. So it was a cool experience. What was nice for me was that I ran cadaver anatomy course class in tandem with my exercise science anatomy class. The cadaver anatomy class covered the entire muscular musculoskeletal system in the first two weeks of class. Whereas my exercise science version of anatomy uh, only covered the musculoskeletal system in the entirety of the semester. So after the first two weeks in cadaver anatomy, I was set for the other class. It was actually right. it was awesome. It was pretty easy after that. Even though that cadaver anatomy class was very challenging. Well, I will point out that the reason I had to take it was it was a prerequisite for physical therapy school, which I had intended on applying and then got into. And we had talked about this a long time ago on the podcast but um anyway one of the requisites to get into pt school is to take a a cadaver anatomy class as an undergraduate student is that also the case for exercise science no so if i had decided to go basically any other route than physical therapy with my exercise science degree i would not have been required to take uh they called it bcmb it's like biochemical something biology I don't remember. Um, But no, it was not a requisite for my exercise science degree. It was a requisite to get into physical therapy school. Got it. So that's why I took it. Got it. But, I mean, it was intense. And the first first exam, which is two weeks into class, we were required to know every single bone in the human body. There's 206. I should have lied. And then, like, there's 209. And somebody's going to be like, wait a second. 206, but not just that. Like, I had to know, like, all the features on all the bones. Like, where are the muscles attached, you know, on every single bone and blah, blah, blah. Like, the bones of the hand, bones of the feet. So when you're tested on bones, did you know how to spell? I had to know all of it. All of it. All of it. We're not talking multiple choice here. No. I don't remember. I mean, I'm thinking, like, it's hard enough to remember all the states and all the capitals of the states. Well, I think it was um, all their exams were a combination of multiple choice, fill in the blank, and short answer. Okay. So, um, when it came... So, the reason I say we were required to know everything is not because we were all given, like, a model, and they were like, name it! 
but anything on that model was fair game so you had to know it sure. all so every single muscle and every single bone and all the features on all those bones and where muscles attached including the skull like sure all sure. the little like fissures fissures yeah. in the skull we had to know those like it was intense which is why i was very anxious and when i said hey are we taking this exam five minutes late into that class period and she got all weird about it i was like i mean some of us would like to take an exam on time today, but okay. How dare you? That's another story. How dare you? So well, I you know not to cut you off. I know a couple bones. There's there's the tibia. There's a fibula. What's the force required to smash both of those at the same time? Now I don't. My degree does not go that far. <laughs> I will say I have some personal experience. Some some skiing downhill and. Trying to take down a ski lift with your foot, bro. It's you were trying to roundhouse kick that thing to the ground. A classic David and Goliath story. <laughs> you were Goliath in this one. <laughs> I was a little too full of myself. I was a little too big for my britches, so yeah, to speak. Oh, um, happens. But yeah, man. So so that's cool. So I I did not realize that anybody outside of like medical school worked with cadavers oh um yeah so so this came as a surprise to me well and as an undergraduate student it was, i thought it was a really cool opportunity and and we obviously if the first two weeks covered the entirety of the musculoskeletal system the next two weeks was the circulatory the next two weeks was you know nervous system next two weeks was whatever it was an intense course super sure. intense um but I found it interesting and valuable. Um, it's hard to you ask off air if it made a difference with what I do now. Not really. Um, there's probably some seeds of that experience deep in my brain that helps me understand things a little bit. But again, that was 11 years ago, at, at, at least, if not 12. Well, you brought up a good point where you said something to the effect of like the diagrams that we see in books Hmm. or that we're taught are like the Lego versions of reality. Right. So when you look at a plastic model of the... The, the skeletal system is much easier. It's, it's a little more obvious. Um, but when you talk about like muscles and how they're all layered around each other on top of each other and all the nerves that run through them and basically when you look at it, a plastic model pretty easy to pull everything apart and understand what's what when you look at an actual cadaver it's much more challenging to to discern what different muscles are they're not clearly delineated like the plastic models right like if you have a plastic model of a thigh it's very easy to pull out you know your vastus medialis vastus lateralis um vastus i don't know i don't remember them all now medialis lateralis intermediate i don't fucking know I don't remember, see? Point is, on a plastic model, yeah, now I see you're working through VMO. VMO, no, that's not VMO. Vastus medialis obliquus. The VMO. I thought VMO was something else. The VMO is a quad muscle. I don't think that, I don't think that's right. Mm, okay. I'm about to pull my phone. Oh, oh. Please. Uh, so, please do. Point is, let me, let me revel. Let me revel in the fact that Andy has a degree <laughs> in the human body, and I just pulled the VMO. Yeah, and you didn't get out it right. on him. VMO? Vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, vastus intermedius, which I think I said in rectus femoris, which we should have we should have gotten that one. Rectus femoris. Sure. Rectus femoris. What was the VMO? VMO is in the quad. Sits medially or in the inside of your thigh. Vastus medialis. Of Look at that. It says, doesn't that. really say what the, oh, because I know, all right, no, all right. Yeah, anyway, so wait, clearly wait, wait, we're wait, clearly wait. we're rusty on our anatomy. <laughs> Point is, if you had a plastic model, pulling those muscles apart was super easy. You'd be like, okay, that's that, that's that, that's that, that's that. But when you're actually looking at a human cadaver and everything's pulled back, those lines are not as clearly delineated. Sure. Now I feel like an idiot. I've, it's four, five o'clock on a Monday. It's been like, a long day. Look, press reverse and listen to Andy say the VMO is not in the leg. No, you're right. The O part, I don't remember. The vastus medialis, I do. Anyway, 
I'll, I'll only, let that one now, pass. Now that you're saying it, I know that, like, was it terminal knee extensions are supposed to target the VMO? I've never really... The PTs on this pod, that listen to this podcast can tell me what terminal knee extensions are good for, but I don't find them to be useful for anybody outside of a clinical setting. <gasps> tell me you don't do <gasps> terminal knee extensions. Andy. Maybe with your... No, anyway. <laughs> All right, so... So all that to say, what what I appreciated about that line of thoughts, because you you know me, you know how I like to take things into different contexts. It's the same kind of thing. It's like what we see in the book, what what we see as models. It's not as clear cut in real life application. Oh yeah, you know. So it, it's funny. I have a client who's a real geek about like quantum physics. And sometimes in between, you know, exercises, he'll just start ranting about quarks, quarks, dark energy, dark matter, uh, you know, Newtonian physics, quantum physics, and um, it's it's pretty cool to listen to. It all goes over my head. But it's interesting to listen to. But he said something the other week about, um, what is it? Is it the electrons that rotate around the nucleus? Mm-hmm. Right? And so he said something to the effect of, you know, the model that we're taught in school about what a atom is, where we have, like, the electrons orbiting, orbiting the... around, like, these lines. He's like, in actuality, it is, it's not that... Right. At all. It's it's almost like we infer that they're there, but we don't know. They're there and they're not at the same time. Yeah, so then you start getting into uh, the difference between, you know, being able to see the position versus speed of an electron. Uh-huh. And, like, you can't tell both at the same time. Yes, thank you. Absolutely, thank you. It's, apparently it's impossible to deduce both simultaneously. Right. Um, and then he also said something like... We're shown in the models in school how the nucleus is like the big ball in the center mm-hmm. and then everything like revolves around it. And he says, uh, in reality, it's something more like the electrons floating around if you think of them as like, I think he said if they were like softballs rotating around like a... NFL size stadium. Mm-hmm. He says the nucleus would be like a a one by one inch dot in the middle of the stadium. He says that the nucleus is actually exceedingly small, huh? Compared to the cloud of electrons around it. Right. Now, somebody who's maybe more schooled can <laughs> correct me on that, uh, or correct him on that. But in any case, it, it goes to show that what we are commonly taught and how we think is often very simplistic for obvious reasons. Right. I mean, hey, if, you know, you're a kid, a lot of this stuff is just going to go over your head anyway, so let's dumb it down into something visually, spatially that you're going to remember that you can regurgitate on a test. Right. How things actually work in the real world, it's much more messy, much more nuanced. Right. And that's that's a general framework to, to keep in mind. Well, and you know, one thing that we have to consider is a cadaver isn't moving. So like when it comes to movement, what we do for a living, a moving body has electrical impulses, body positioning, weight distribution, force vectors, whatever, is quite different than just like a static body. So, um, and there are coaches and physical therapists that are a lot smarter than I am about internal and external rotation at certain joint positions and so on and so forth. I, in that, there are some days where I'm like, you know what, I wish that I was a little bit more knowledgeable. At the same time, there is, um, it's, it's kind of nice to be like, you know what, we're going to find a position that suits you best 
and allows you to leverage some weight comfortably, and we're gonna rock that. Now, whether there's some internal, external rotation, whether there's some inversion, eversion, pronation, supination, uh, you know, some stuff going on there, probably important, maybe important, but all I know is how to coach people and to get results. Um, and so I stay in my lane as far as that's concerned. You mean to tell me you're not going to have a protractor in your new gym? Nope. You're not, oh, not like going to be measuring joint angles. You're not going to be out here measuring joint angles, Andy. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing: is I understand my limitations. I actually do think about this quite often. I understand my limitations. I also understand that some of these. This is part of the reason, and you and I would maybe disagree here. This is a part of the reason that I don't necessarily coach mobility work because I don't um, I don't respect mobility work. I don't give mobility work the respect that it others give it. <laughs> I'm trying to choose my words carefully here because I don't want to say I don't give a shit because I do, but only to a degree. And and here's why. If someone comes in and, and their ankles are not, I don't know, protract, you know, I got my approach. If they're not perfectly symmetrical, do I want to spend time working on it? I don't know, maybe. Or do I want to find some variation of a squat or hinge pattern that works with their current limitations and just let them run, like, run. Mm-hmm. Be like, all right, we figured out there's something going on here. Let's test a couple things. Now run with it and get as big and as strong and as fast as whatever, as fast as possible. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't um, know enough about it. I don't coach it enough either. And if I were to, it would be me gatekeeping fitness for a client who just wants to move and sweat. Ooh, gatekeeping. You don't want to be a gatekeeper. You don't want to be a inhibitor Right. Of motion more than a facilitator of motion. Right. And I'm also very careful because if I point out that someone's shoulder flexion is less than ideal, now they might get in their head about it. Like, oh, well, is that a problem? Is that a big deal? I don't know. Maybe. Is it, is it a problem? I don't think that's so. A, that's a great question. So here's the thing. is I don't think so unless you present with an issue, in which case I will refer out. But the point I'm trying to make is, is like, do I want to work on stretching your lats so that your active flexion is whatever? No. I'm going to, if you want to stretch, sure. Here's a band. Let's stretch. But... I don't think that it's something that I need to spend a lot of time on when I have exercises that work well with your current self. Take these, let's run with it. And over time, my opinion is that good training over time will improve some of these deficiencies. All I'm trying to say is, I'm not gonna point out deficiencies to people because then they might get in their head about it or they might get nervous or whatever. I'm just gonna be like, you know what? You are perfect just the way you are, Zach. Let's let's work out. I've been waiting 30 weeks <laughs> for you to say that. <laughs> On air. It's recorded. It wow. is written. Wow. So there's there's a lot of highlights that I'm going to be revisiting already from this episode. I'm just going to name the episode that. Zach is perfect just the <laughs> way he is. Thank you. I would really appreciate it if you did. Okay. Everybody's going to be like, what? It's going to be the lowest downloaded episode yet. So, I do want to come back to this this discussion. I did want to talk about, because you didn't know this, that Tennessee, the University of Tennessee, where I did my undergrad and my graduate degree, the University of Tennessee pioneered what they call the body farm. And so, going back to this, this cadaver anatomy class, it is said that there's hundreds or maybe thousands of bodies stored in the basements, basement of Neyland Stadium, that 104,000 capacity stadium. There are bodies there. On a satellite campus very close by to UT Medical, but also close by to the actual campus, is what's called the Body Farm. It was the first one in the nation, and the last I looked into it, it's one of four. There might be more now, 
but basically what the criminal justice uh, department at the University of Tennessee did a long time ago, like in the 70s or 80s, is they took an acre of land or whatever, and then they distributed bodies that were donated to science into the acre and just let them decompose. In and the like, wild. In the wild. Just diff- in different states. They buried some of them deep, buried some shallow, some half in water, half out, some in the trunk of a car. So it's criminal justice. And so what the uh, University of Tennessee did is is they pioneered the body farm where they started studying different rates of decomposition. Interesting. Under different circumstances or conditions. I had seen the body farm with my actual eyes. I didn't see any bodies, but I saw the actual body farm. Really? Yeah. First one in the nation. And again, now there's, I think, four or five total or something like that. Wow. But that, that's the only other thing I want to add about the anatomy thing. Now, apparently that course, that department, is exceedingly difficult to get into at Tennessee. Like, if you don't have A's in, like, all your chemistries and biologies and, I don't know, what's the chemistry class that everybody hates? Organic? Then you're probably not getting it. Anyway, I think it's fascinating. So... You're taking that if you're being groomed for special investigations, that right. kind of thing. Right, Like if you want to work for the TBI or whatever. Well, great. Yeah, yeah. you should be a straight-A student right. have your stuff together. You, yeah, you would hope. Yeah. Yeah. You but, would hope. yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, that makes sense. That, that certainly makes sense. So, what, so what's going on below the stadium may or may not be conspiracy theory, but the out-in-the-open body farm... Is, a, is an actual thing. Yeah, on the open body farm is an actual thing. Um, now, I think what they end up doing is as those bodies decompose, I think they end up cleaning and then using those bones for those classes. So your, your cadaver anatomy classes, there's drawers and drawers of bones. That's right. why they say there's like thousands of bodies under the stadium. I don't know if that's true, mm. but there's certainly a few because they use those bones and those, bo- those decomposing bodies as part of the anatomy classes. Wow. Um, and I imagine you don't, you know, the body farm's outside. It's not like you're doing all of your coursework at the body farm. Like, you probably spend a couple hours a week there, but you do all the rest of your work in a lab. And a lot of those labs were just happened to be in Newland Stadium. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. No, the only hands-on type scientific lab that I ever did was geology. What was that look for, Andy? What was that look for? I'm handling rocks, soil, etc. That's important. It's what we live on. Rocks and soil. I, I, there once was a time where I could identify a rock, a, a type Sedimentary. of... Sedimentary. Yes, a type of rock. <laughs> that is one type of rock. Yes, you're right. So, that's that's the extent of my laboratory experience. You know, it's funny. Laboratory experience, if Labor- you will. Labor- <laughs> um, getting your rocks off, studying rocks. Uh, speaking of rocks, you grew up, and I grew up, and we're nearby the Appalachian Trail. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about the mountain range that is the Appalachian Trail? You took a geology class. Do you know anything about it? This is not fitness related at all. No, well, no, hiking. It's not. We might we might be losing a lot of folks here. <laughs> um, I've read about this twice for, in the last. First month. of all, I'm I personally don't have a dog in this fight, and I'm not a diva about it. But it's interesting that you pronounce it with a long A. Appalachian. Uh huh. As opposed to Appalachian. Correct. A lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about how Appalachia is pronounced. Remind me of the university you went to? I myself went to Appalachian State University. (laughs) So few people have heard more uh, discussion about the pronounce pronunciation pronunciation. It's been a long we both had a long day. It's okay. Um, of, of Of that particular word. I'm I'm down with either. Hey, you wanna you wanna use the long A, you wanna use the short A, it's all good with me. Well it's a it's a beautiful place, it's a beautiful part of the it's a beautiful strip of the country, if you will. 
Um, and I actually had a buddy of mine who hiked just over half of it. I've heard it's intense. I just finished a book called A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson, and it talks about his experience on the mm, Appalachian Trail. I'm somewhat familiar with yeah. It was a very good book. I, I'm recommending it on the podcast. Um, Do you have a, a walk in copy? the wood. Yeah. Maybe you could lend it to a friend. I can lend it to you. I, I think it belongs to my client, Brooke. I need to make sure. But I, I can lend it to you. It's good. It's really good. Um, the reason I bring it up because you brought up rocks is the, Appala- the mountain range that is the Appalachian Trail is as old as Pangaea. Wow. Really? Yeah. Um, that's, and, so that's interesting. So... Could I infer that maybe at one point in time the mountain range was way higher? You could, and correctly. it's been eroded down. You could, and correctly. that's why it's actually like not as high as some of the stuff out west. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That, and then the mountain range actually continues through like northeastern and like Scandinavian countries. If you were to smash our, like, if you were to rebuild Pangaea, that mountain range would continue into northern Europe. Wow. Yeah, pretty wild, Ooh, right? cool. So there's that. But then also, talk about old, Pangaea was a supercontinent. And then I thought I had learned that Pangaea was a supercontinent that then spread apart into where it is today. That's not true. It was. And then it spread apart. And then it came back together, and that's how we got Florida. Florida's actually part of Africa. And it got stitched on to what was now the North America after the second time it collided and then it moved away again. Wow. But the Appalachian Trail is older than that. Appalachian Trail is older than Florida. (laughs) That brings me great joy. Right. Interesting. Wow. So obviously I have no context for most of the things that you just said. So, interesting. So like, by our plate tectonics, it's, it's not as simple as one big movement in one direction correct like continent and then it all spreads apart you're saying that there's some smashing back and forth Mm -hmm. that's gone on interesting pretty pretty wild right yeah well if i had stuck with geology maybe i'd know a thing or two about (laughs) about all this yeah yeah very cool yeah very cool i mean yeah it's interesting i mean it makes sense it almost makes you wonder it almost makes you wonder certainly if you know, it, it'll be interesting to pontificate like how world geography will look in millennia in the future. You know, how things will continue to move around on our planet. Although probably at that point we will inhabit other planets. But um, you know, what if uh, what if by some wacky miracle of plate tectonics we were all smushed back together again? what that would do for the geopolitical landscape. Mm, interesting. If we, if we all had to come together and, and be a lot more friendly if we were a lot more close. Well, if it happened on a very short time scale, maybe. But we're talking about it would be millennia. There'd be like a river-wide distance of the Atlantic Ocean for a millennia. You know? I'm, uh, yeah. We, 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 we veered way off course. It's a fun, it's a fun <laughs> thought experiment. It is a fun thought experiment. Yeah. Um, and to bring it back to fitness, what I do, I do, I don't know if I want to go hike the entire Appalachian Trail, but I do like hiking. I think hiking out in the woods is a very underappreciated expression of physical activity. And you get to be out in nature. I think we spend too much time in our concrete jungle. And so, I think spending more time out in nature is probably good for more people, most people. But, anyway. Yeah, man, 100%. You know, they talk about forest bathing. I've never heard that term. You've never heard the term forest bathing? It's a... It sounds like a new age, bougie version of just being outside. uh, It's my understanding... Granted, I've only kind of just heard this like in passing, but I think it's like a, I could be getting this way wrong, but uh, I think it's either a traditional practice or maybe even a quote unquote prescribed thing um, that people do in uh, Asian 
countries. There's mm. actually like prescribed like time to be outside in nature. Huh. Called forest bathing. Granted, that could also be like a bastardized translation, you know, <laughs> into into English of what's actually going on, which is just that people like to walk around outside the woods, <laughs> <laughs> which is also which is also great. That's possible. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's. I was actually thinking about this a little bit uh, earlier today. The value of boredom. Because I've actually been driving a lot today. And I've had like podcasts and audiobooks on. And I was talking with my mom about this not too long ago as well. Where she was like, we were talking about technology and how you always have the option to have a screen in front of your face. Mm -hmm. And she said something to the effect of, will kids ever have the excuse to just lay outside and stare at the clouds for half an hour? I like this philosophical debate. I don't want to call it a debate. I just think it's an interesting question. You know, because again, it's like, we we don't few we have fewer and fewer opportunities to allow ourselves to be bored. I mean there's always something to do first of all. And second of all, if you don't have something to do, it's so easy to have the computer, the phone, the internet or any other media to have content pushed into your into your attention. And so you kind of have to make the conscious decision to take yourself away from that never-ending spiral and allow yourself to be bored. And I'm sure there's TED Talks on this. I'm sure there's like books written on this about the value of boredom. But it's where we develop our imagination. It's where we develop our sense of... um, like thinking, you know, kind of talking to ourselves, thinking through things, seeing what comes up, you know? And this, I think, is even a little bit separate from like the practice of, you know, meditation, which is something that I've talked a little bit about and something that I'm big on. But even outside of like a quote unquote formal practice of like, okay, I'm sitting down, I'm meditating. Even, Even outside of that, just the state of like, being maybe bored but also it's like if you're hiking it's a very unique experience because you're not really bored because you're hiking but also you don't have anything to think about and you know this this is one of the beautiful things I love about training that we can kind of relate to hiking you have no choice but to exist in the actual physical world. Right. You have to look where you're going. You have to take steps, physically, with your own feet, to to move, to get to the next place. Um, and in a world where we can, quote-unquote, like make progress just by watching the next video or sending the next email or what have you, Things like training, but I think even more so important, things like hiking, being out in the physical world where you're covering distance, is also so important for the mind in some very special way. Or even just, you know, backtracking that, just being outside and maybe not moving. Maybe just looking at a tree. Maybe just looking at the clouds. And seeing like... That's kind of where you actually find out how your mind works. Hmm. When it's not being blasted with ex- with external stimulus. Infinite stimulus. Yeah. So I made it a point a long time ago when I would walk my dog in the park. Now it's too hot lately and she turns 12 on Wednesday. Happy hmm. birthday, Jane. She turns 12 on Wednesday. But she's too old now for this kind of heat. When she was younger, I could throw the Frisbee in this weather and she'd be fine. But as she's gotten older, her tolerance for this heat. But anyway, 
So when we walk in the park, I leave my phone in the car so that I can be disconnected for at least a period of time. When I would hike Percy, like the red trail, which would take me an hour and a half if I was hoofing it, I didn't bring my phone. In part because I'm trying to just exist in the space and just like take in my surroundings, but also because I can't help but touch my phone. Right. I brought my phone with me on a walk with her last week because I was in, I was expecting a phone call, and I kept touching it. Right. Like either putting my hand in my pocket or pulling it out to look at something, and I was like, stop. Like, just don't touch your phone. So that's why I leave it in the car because I'm sort of, I guess most of us are probably programmed if you're bored for a half second to look at your phone. Mm. And I have those days where I slide into that habit. And then I have days like today where I'm like, I just don't want to be on my phone at all. Like, I'm not missing out on anything. Yeah. So, yeah. I've never been like, oh man, I missed that tweet or I missed that video. It's all there. It's always going to be there. So, yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some value in being bored, being disconnected. Yeah. I'm trying to embrace that more actually. I think and really it's just sort of reframing expectations. So I'll be like, oh I'm so bored. And then I'll be like, that's good. That means you don't have to do anything. Right. So it's not that the expectation is I ought to be doing something I try to reframe it and I'm like I don't have to Mm. there's literally nothing that I have to do right now earlier before we showed up for this podcast I was beat so I was like I'm going to lay down on my bed and take a nap for 30 minutes that 30 minutes turned into another 30 minutes and that 30 minutes turned into another 20 minutes and and I thought about it and I was like I don't have to be anywhere I don't have to do anything I got a lot of work done this, this morning I worked and I just fired off a bunch of emails and phone calls this morning. And so when I got home early, like, earlier, I was like, you know what? I don't have to do anything. So I'm going to lay on this bed. I already worked out. The only thing I haven't done today is meal prep. Which is going to take me all of an hour, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. Trying to be bored. Yeah. Don't got anywhere to be. Yeah. Yeah, man. We've, we've talked in various ways... Especially as it relates to training, obviously, because that's the theme of our show here. Maybe not today, but... <laughs> I was going to say, we've, we've gone some funny directions today. But, yeah, there's, there's, there's value in stepping away from the rat race, the hamster wheel. You know, in training, always looking for the next plate, the next PR, you know, whatever as opposed to this other side of just finding finding peace, finding motivation, finding whatever. Uh, maybe, or hey, maybe finding yourself. Finding yourself in the process, right? Because, um, you know, so much of fitness is marketing now when you really think about it because it is an industry it is oh a, my God. it is a business yeah. so even though like we we like to joke around slash we're also very serious about our own personal goals performance goals aesthetic goals what have you i'm always one to take it back to finding joy in the process and again this thought experiment of even if you didn't have all the extrinsic rewards, would something like training be intrinsically rewarding? And that's kind of the same same line of thinking of like taking a hike, taking a walk, staring at the clouds. Hmm. I think it's tough too because our, our Western culture um, prioritizes, glorifies, busyness. Sure. Almost to a, probably a fault, to like a problem. I think most people who work 40-hour work weeks, if you're like bringing it back to fitness, years ago we were, we were um, reading research conducted on how much physical activity actually happens during a workout. Mm. 
So you would um, put out, like, send out this survey to, like, let's say a bunch of gym goers, a bunch of gym bros. Give them a survey. You know, how often do you work out? How vigorous is that workout? How many times a week? How many minutes of vigorous physical activity are you doing? And they would all say, well, I'm in the gym for an hour, so 60 minutes. Uh, then they put activity trackers on them. Let's say, well, let's say heart rate monitors. I don't remember, but let's say heart rate monitors. And they found that in a 60-minute, quote, vigorous training session that there was four minutes of vigorous <laughs> physical activity only four right um i would imagine that a lot of people who work 40-hour work weeks probably do a, like a productive like productive work probably 25 to 30 but sure i think I, and I've never worked a, a typical nine to five, so it's hard for me to comment. But like, I can imagine, like, if you get your work done, Megan, Megan has worked a typical nine to five, and I would. We've talked about this before. Like, if you've gotten your work done for the day, I don't really see why you need to be there. Right. Like, why can't you just leave? Right. And establish a healthy like work life balance. If you're if you're a fast worker and you're product like productive and it's good work, who gives a shit if you leave at four thirty or four? Yeah. Like, why you got to be hanging around till five? It's just the point. Is, like, I think again, Western civilization, Western culture, sort of prioritizes this being productive, pumping out work, doing the emails, doing the work, answering the phone calls, being on, like, being available, especially with phones now, being available all the time. Yeah. Um, and I don't. I think that's. I think we're starting to see some of the detriment of that now. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, like a lot of things, it seems to be based on old models. You know, like, I, I, again, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I would kind of assume that, like, the 40-hour work week was, like, pared down from what probably used to be the 80 and then the 70, 60, and the 50-hour work week, where you just had factory workers, you literally just had work that was coming down a conveyor belt that you just that was never ending. So it's like you had to put in your eight hours because that was your quota. Yeah. And you had to come back the next day because it always came down the conveyor belt. Right. And it never stops. And you know, it's like school. Why do we have the summers off? To work in the fields. Well who's who's working who's who's a farmer anymore? I had never really thought about that. Yeah. It's like you know, then again, what do I know? Like daylight savings time, isn't that like a, a farming mm-hmm. thing? So that so you know, farmers, we could we could move, we could work with the sun. Well, why not just get up different? <laughs> why did the entire world be like? You know what we should do? The entire world is like, you know what we should do? We should move our clocks around. And I'm over here like, so no one ever thought, hey farmers, just wake up different and work different. Well, hey, I'm sure at the time there was good reasoning. I'm sure there was. And I believe it's Arizona and probably some other areas, maybe some other states that don't recognize. I think Indianapolis doesn't. Yeah. So it was very interesting when I made a a cross-country trip at one point in time in my life. And I believe I rolled up to Flagstaff, Arizona to spend the night. And I was very confused about what time it was. (laughs) Very confused. Because, again, it was like, it was either, I don't really know how this this math, time zone math might work. I'm pretty sure it was two hours off. Surely it wouldn't have been three hours off. But it was two hours off from when I thought what time it was. Mm, That is confusing. You know, because it was like... Time zones plus time zones plus daylight savings time. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, so it was it was crazy. So again, it's just another example of antiquated ways of doing things. I'm sure, there's a lot of antiquated training ways. Oh sure, that are that still permeate the fitness sphere. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this has been this has been quite a little conversation. How much time we got? So, unfortunately, um, no on idea. my on my computer here, I don't have a a timer running. So we but, have no idea. But it is five till six. I think we started a little after five, so we got a couple minutes. 
Do you want to talk about the last two things we were going to talk about? <laughs> I, I don't recall the last two things. No, we were going to talk about Andy's Eats. Oh, it's yeah. Very simple. Yep, yep. I don't, that's have, right. to, I don't have to pontificate, but um, this podcast is going to publish. All right, listener, two weeks ago I talked about this. Um, I made a breakfast bake where I roasted two pounds of potatoes. And then I threw a bunch of cheese and ground beef and eggs on top of that and baked it and made like a breakfast casserole. And if you remember correctly, I said it was terrible. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it was not good. I was like, bruh. This week, I've changed it. This week, I used hash browns instead of like roasted potatoes or whatever. I just did hash browns. A layer of hash browns, baked that for a little while with some spices. Then I took it out. Put a whole bag of cheese on there. I was like, I'm, I need these calories. Whole bag of shredded cheese as a layer. Then I threw ground a pound of ground beef and a pound of ground sausage that I had browned together. On top of that, with 10 eggs. Ooh. It is substantially better this week. It's still not right great, but it's much better. Hey, I have a quick question. Uh-huh. If you're just whipping up some ground beef, what's, what are your go-to spices? Uh, maybe red pepper flakes, cumin, salt, pepper, um, maybe something like an ancho chili powder, paprika, but yeah, something like that. It just depends on what I'm feeling. I thought about doing like one of those taco seasoning packets, Mm -hmm. and but then I didn't. And I'm kind of glad because I just don't think I could stomach that at 4.30 in the morning. I I can't stomach any breakfast at 4.30 in the morning, let alone a thousand calories worth of potatoes and sausage and beef and cheese <laughs> it's it's right. i can do it the hash browns help it but i'm just like i don't want to eat this right um i'm eating it because remember i'm trying to get fat so trying to get fat yoked yeah say that yoked um actually really what i'm trying to do is is build a, a daily nutrient profile because what i like to do is use my fitness power to track my calories until i kind of get into a rhythm and then drop the my fitness pal part right so basically tee up my days for right now tee up my days to get to about 2500 3000 calories by five o'clock and then let dinner ride and that way i'm not tracking every single thing every single day all the time just trying to set a lifestyle around eating an ass load of food and then let it ride for six months with maybe some minor tweaks here and there like revisit but yeah so there's that and then the last thing we were going to talk about was somebody died this weekend. Unfortunately, yes. Yes. Uh, probably by the time this episode comes out, it'll be common knowledge. But uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, John Meadows passed, who is a uh, an, an iconic name in the world of bodybuilding mm-hmm. and, and, and strength training, really. Uh, known for the Meadows Row, mm-hmm. uh, his his uh, stage name, if you will, is Mountain Dog. And in the past few years, he actually had a really cool, a really great, and active YouTube channel. Which um, only here in the past maybe six or nine months, um, I really got into. So he put out a lot of training information, a lot of. Um, exercise tutorials you know a lot about uh, nutrition but uh, all that to say that um, by all accounts he was a really uh, awesome guy a family man yeah um, twin, twin boys and a wife mm-hmm he was 49 yep. so he's young yep uh, it's my understanding that he had a uh, genetic heart condition which May or may not be, um, you know, the cause of uh, of his passing. I don't. I don't really know the details. From what I heard, he passed in his sleep peacefully. So yeah. there's that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and by all accounts, one of the sweetest, most respectful, and courteous men in the world of fitness and bodybuilding. I like everybody that I've seen talking about it said that he was like a wonderful man, mm-hmm. family man, all that just a monster of a dude but yeah obviously super jacked one uh untold number of of competitions i think he was i think he was most active 
in the early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken. Right. At 49, that makes sense, because he would have been 29. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that makes the most sense. So, um, I know, again, like here recently, um, I've taken I've taken a lot of uh, I've taken a lot of notes from his YouTube channel. Um, I started doing a lot of Y raises, Y shoulder raises huh. um, that I first got from from his content. Yeah. So um, yeah. So all that to say, uh, rest in peace, John Meadows, a a titan, an icon of the bodybuilding and the fitness industry. Um, and he's got, you know, he leaves behind a lot of great content. So I would encourage anybody out there, if you haven't already, uh, look up Mountain Dog on YouTube, and you'll find a lot of a lot of cool information. And I think, I, I think he really embodied something special that we're up to here, which is um, being free and open and honest with your training methods and and whatever knowledge you have to offer and that's really that's really what this is all about you know training is about self-improvement coaching is about helping people to take the steps that they need to take to improve themselves you know we as coaches as trainers we can't do the work for you but what we can do is inspire you we can equip you with knowledge and and no BS strategies and that's really something that I think that he stood for so even beyond like the YouTube content as I think you were mentioning I'm pretty sure he wrote a lot mm -hmm. so I'm sure if you dig a little bit you'll find a lot of articles um, and probably training logs that uh, that he leaves behind so uh, it's a great loss to the fitness industry and I know I'll be going back and kind of taking a harder look at, at some of his content. Nice. Yeah. You want to wrap there? Let's do it. A to Z, no BS. We will talk to you next time. Thanks, guys.